Training Make Podcast. We are back. Uh, I'm here, as always, with Max. Max Ada, how you doing, man? Good. How you doing? Uh, and our distinguished guest today is none other than Lane Norton, otherwise known as Bio Lane. How are you today, Lane? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. We are yeah. super pumped to have you. Um, and before we get started, because I just want to jump right into our topics today, but before we get started, I think it's better if you can kind of explain uh, what it is that you do, your specialties, um, and how that kind of fits into the, to the fitness world. If you could do that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess the way I always describe myself is a, a meathead, or one of two ways, a meathead who loves science or a science geek who loves uh, lifting weights. And you can <laughs> take six of one, half dozen of the other as, as to which one's more accurate. But uh, I, I got into lifting when I was uh, about 15 years old um, because I wanted to uh, get more attention from girls or sorry, get any attention from girls yep. and stop getting bullied. And it didn't fix either of those problems, but I just got into uh, lifting weights for the love of lifting weights. And 20 years later, here I am. And um, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, I was always into science. And when I went to undergrad school, about six months in, I decided that I, I kind of wanted to go a general route in terms of learning the human body, because I thought there might be something to this whole bodybuilding thing that I was really getting sucked into. And so I did uh, a degree in biochemistry. And when I had about a year left into that, I was like, well, I don't feel like I really know anything. So I, um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Cause back then we're talking uh, 2002, 2003 era. There, there wasn't online coaching. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't even really an online presence. I mean, I was posting on the bodybuilding.com message boards, which is kind of how I got my start in the industry. If you had to pick a start and, um, so I just didn't know what I was going to do because back then, if you wanted to make money in the industry, it was kind of like, okay, you were either one of the top guys at the Olympia, you owned a gym, yep. you were owned a supplement company, or you were a personal trainer. And that was kind of your options, you know? So I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I didn't really like the idea of really, I mean, I liked the idea of maybe possibly owning a supplement company or a gym, but that seemed so far away for a kid who had no money. So I decided I would delay the real world by a few years and go to grad school. Went to grad school, got lucky enough to get accepted at the University of Illinois, which is one of the top schools for nutritional sciences. Studied under Don Lehman, who was one of the foremost experts in protein metabolism. So I was, you know, very transparent, uh, just a meathead. I just wanted to learn how, how to get jacked, how much protein we need to eat, all that kind of jazz. So did a PhD in that. And along the way, like got into really into competing, won my pro card in natural bodybuilding. And then after I graduated, I uh, did some pro natural bodybuilding shows, did pretty good those. And then I dabbled in powerlifting before, but after like 2012, I started to get really into it. I did my first USAPL meet and then that kind of snowballed into, oh, let's try this whole nationals thing. Won <laughs> nationals on my, on my first go around, then won it again the next year, went to IPF Worlds, all that kind of stuff. So while I was in graduate school, um, I was already writing articles for bodybuilding.com and getting a lot of people interested in my stuff. And I was already doing like meal, meal plans, nutritional planning for people for free, just cause I like doing it. And at that point I said, well, you know, I'm in grad school. I don't have much time. I probably ought to get paid for some of this stuff. 
So I started doing that and started just charging dirt cheap amounts of money, just stupid, like $25 a month, just, you know, just, <laughs> just to get a little bit of, you know, cash, yeah. whatever, just because I was like, I felt guilty charging people because I liked doing it so much. And I just, I, it kind of grew organically from there. All I was was word of mouth for about five, six years. Um, and by the time I graduated grad school, I was, I was making a full time income being an online coach. And that was before the Instagram age when everybody yeah, became an online right. coach. Yeah. But um, so nowadays, I mean, obviously my business has kind of evolved over the years. Now um, we're kind of diversified. So I, I don't coach one-on-one -on -one as much anymore. My, my wife, Holly, still does. We have a team of coaches who work for us, who we have trained, who um, a lot of them are from the program here at USF. They came from Bill Campbell's lab. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him, but he's really, really um, smart guy. Actually, I think really – was that um, – did Jeff Nippard have a lot of involvement with that with him? I might have seen him in a few pieces of – He might have. He might have. I'm not sure because I don't I – don't, uh, I know Jeff, but I don't yeah. keep up with his content uh, all the time. But he might have had Bill on. Bill's a very smart guy. So okay. I've, I've hired several – But he's very prevalent him. in that sphere though, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So he's, um, he's involved with the ISSN, with the NSCA, you know, a lot of evidence-based people. And cool. he's also a really great guy and he has a great program that he's built from the ground up over at USF. So um, I've been lucky enough to get several of his students who have come on and, and been coaches for us. Um, and then, you know, we've written a few books that have I've been lucky enough that they've done really well. Um, and we're currently working on like a nutritional coaching app that should be, we submitted to Apple and Google and they should be approved. It should be approved anytime now. We're really excited about that. Cool. And then we've also started the wheels in place for a, um, a uh, physique coaching. We call it the physique coaching Academy, which is actually a partnership between myself and Bill. And that will be kind of providing an actual grounds of people to, if they want to, if you want to be an online coach, this is how you can get certified. Oh, that's really a cool. certification that actually means something, not just, Hey, I took this course. It will actually have some weight to it. Right. So that's kind of like the stuff we're doing right now. And, um, you know, I've just, but I just look at it as like, I love bodybuilding. I love lifting weights and I've just been lucky enough to, to, to be in the industry and make some money doing what I love doing. Awesome. And well, um, the main reason I, I wanted to have you on today was because I recently saw one of your posts on Instagram, uh, geared towards, I don't know what type of coaches to call them, but I guess functional coaches. Yeah. Um, it's kind of these people that use really convoluted, you know, expl explanations for why they do something or why someone else is wrong. Um, to them, they've confused the word specificity with, with training in oh, general. Yes. And my, I guess what I want to take from you is, do you feel like these people are damaging to, to the fitness community? Do they confuse people? And if so, why, why do you believe that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the post in particular, I called out, I, you know, I think one of the things that, um, when you go through an advanced, what was sad is this person had a PhD. You can say really Joel Seedman. It's Joel yeah, Seedman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know how cool you guys are with me going after people. Cause you know me, if you've seen my Instagram I've, post, yeah. I, I, I DGAF. There's probably about seven people that watch this, so you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, not super worried. I. I. You know. I feel. Um, you know. I don't like to uh, subtweet people, and I don't like to like talk. You know. Some people say it's off color that I call people out directly. 
but I, I'm kind of like, all right, well, there's no oversight in this industry. There's no government yeah, regulation. Exactly. So if, if somebody doesn't say it, then this stuff's just going to continue to go on. And I've, I've had so many people contact me and say, thank you. You know, I bought into this, but, you know, seeing the way you broke down the claims, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you shed light on this. So his post in particular was kind of bagging on uh, squatting, you know, full range of motion, which when I first saw the post and somebody sent it to me, I thought, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear them out because I do think there are legitimate reasons why somebody wouldn't squat full range, to, full range of motion. I do think there's reasons sure. why you would do that. I'm not a one size fits all. But then you get into the explanations and it's just like, come on, man. You know, like my bullshit detector just started going, just started ringing <laughs> off the hook, you know. It's like better gains, you know. It was almost like the game changers where they're just slaving off everything and finally it gets, you know, it's also going to grow your dick five inches, you know. Oh, wait, the, uh, wait, the game changers wasn't, uh, that's not uh, <laughs> cool with science? Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's another one. That was like three months of my life down the toilet having to deal with that stuff. Right. But, so, you know, I think one of the problems is, and I, I see this and it's sad, but I, I do understand why it happens. You see these people and they, they come up, like you said, these convoluted movements or these really awkward ways of programming or, you know, they, they just do all this stuff where it's like literally majoring in the minors and people, you know, people like us go, why do they do that? Well, in my opinion, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I started coaching people, you know, my problem was not competition. My problem was just trying to convince people that I could do this effectively online. Right. Now the problem you deal with is you, you don't have to convince anybody of that. Everybody's well aware of it. The problem now is you have to deal with a sea of competition, right? It's yeah. you and then 100,000 other people who all want to do this stuff. For sure. So what's one of the ways, you know, one of the ways to get noticed is you kind of do it like I've done it, like a lot of us have done it, where you consistently put out good information over the course of a long period of time and you slowly but surely build a following. If you don't want to do that, one of the things you can do is yell really loudly at the top yeah. of your lungs about how everyone else is wrong and you've developed a magic formula that is going to fix everyone's problems, right? Exactly. So we that is... We talk a lot about, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we talk a lot about the idea of, of like, you got to have, there's three main things that every coach has to have, or any good coach is going to have, and, and you got to have at least two of these boxes checked off to even be considered, you know, a good coach. And, and those three are, you know, have you done it yourself? Have you done it to any degree of your, of your own ability? Or at least have you maximized what you have to the highest level? Not everyone's going to be the fastest guy in the world or the strongest sure. guy in the world, but have you gotten the most out of yourself? The second is, do you have some kind of formal education in it? Do you have some kind of actual, you know, hey, there's, there's a mentorship or something, you know, outside of, of just, I read a bunch of articles on, you know, Instagram, I read a bunch of infographics on Instagram and now I'm a coach. And then the third is, have you proven that you can do it with somebody else? Have you taken anybody to an, to you know a higher level than yourself or to the highest level? And it's right. funny because the idea of functional fitness stuff sort of negates a lot of those because it's in you're incapable of measuring whether or not somebody has functional fitness, right? right? They they have these like kind of weird well, exercises. Well, then the goalposts then the goal right. can always be moved. Yeah, you move it, and the same with the the other thing, and then. The idea of like this built-in excuse for education because, well, 
people don't want you to know this. It's a secret. It's, yeah. it's some kind of like right. counter culture movement. So it's a funny thing that right off the bat, you know, you've basically set yourself up to have this, this whole thing that's, you know, well, it's, so, it's so Max, all those, I would say that Joel is pretty clever in the way that he does his stuff. I mean, I, I've really, I've been on him for quite a while and I can <laughs> tell you, I can tell you that, um, the way that he approaches all three of those things you've said, he tries to cover them. So in, mm. in, the, in this, um, the squat post that Lane pointed out on his Instagram, yeah. um, in the squat post, he, he would say, I used to squat like this, and now I squat like this. And look at how much I've maximized my progression or my progress. Uh, and then his formal education, he makes sure that he says Dr. Uh, Joel Seedman wherever the fuck he can, okay? Right. Um, and and I'm, I don't know. I, wanna, I would love to see this uh his thesis like i would love to see it and maybe he is an actual doctor but there are people that have raised questions on this and thirdly he could point to you he could point you in the direction to all of his nfl athletes all of his uh you know baseball players right, right. competitors that he has in in his bevy of videos i'm not taking his side at all but that is the response that you're going to get Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I actually, I actually looked up his thesis. So he, he does have a PhD uh, from okay. the University of Georgia, and his thesis is on uh, most, mostly post-activation potentiation. Um, I, I will say another person and I, we, we looked at it. And I, I mean, I'm not a PhD is a very difficult thing to go through. I'm sure right. it was not easy right. for him, um, but it was not something that I considered making a meaningful impact on the literature. But that's just my opinion. Um, right. But, you know, that being said, I remembered something that, that and I agree with you, Max. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, that people can still get around that, you know, sure. through, through the methods Zach talked about. But I was speaking with a friend of mine. He was a 12-year Navy SEAL sniper. And he was a bad dude. You know, he, he, he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, for the country, and he's a well-known guy in the team, um, kind of the team community. But um, he was talking one day, we were talking about, about stuff, and he was like, yeah, you know, he's, and he, he was talking about some of the shit bags he served with. Right. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, you mean like some of the, the non-team guys? He's like, oh, no. He's like, we had a few, you know, shit bags in our unit. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, man, these guys got to go through buds. They got to go through right, right. You know, selection, all this kind of stuff. And he looked at me and he said, Lane, some turds just won't flush. <laughs> and I remember yeah. thinking, damn, that's, but I mean, you see this, you see this with medical doctors who yeah. say funky shit and you see this with, so I, you know, what I'll tell people is, okay, you know, cause I'm very proud of my, my doctor. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. So I'm, I'm not going to sit there and bag on somebody else's, but I, what I'll say is, okay, a PhD or an MD or anything, it doesn't mean we can just believe anything anybody says. That's not true. Now, what it does is I will usually give somebody who has something like that a little more leeway to explain themselves, which is why I didn't just jump down Joel's throat. I kind of let him try to explain himself, and then he did a terrible job of it. <laughs> um, and, but I also, you know, th those kind of credentials gives me a little bit more confidence that somebody probably does know what they're talking about, right? Um, same thing if they've coached athletes and they've done well, okay, well I have a little more confidence that they know what they're talking about, but I never put all my eggs in one basket. Cause I've seen, 
I have seen absolute morons who coach people who do really well. I mean, right, right. if you get, if you take, um, if you get enough people through your doors, you're going to, I mean, there For was, sure. especially when I was coaching in like bodybuilding and I would see some of the programming, especially with some of these bikini athletes who would go to the Olympia and I would look at their kind of weight training and their diet. I'm, I'm thinking this is insane. Like this is actually insane that this is what you're doing and you're actually, you, and you still look like this, you know, yeah. like, yeah. I think one of the things you have to realize is when you take people through those, you know, those are big, those big teams are coaching four or 5,000 people a year because they're just all given the same plans. Right. But when you coach that many people, you're going to run into some genetically gifted people who are beyond the standard deviations. And if all you do is prop those up, say, well, look at my client, right? Right, right. Well, I, I don't care about them. Show me somebody who can take somebody with really crappy genetics and make something out of them. That's what yeah. impresses me. Yeah. Right. So, so that's. Yeah. So Lane, I, I think um, I, I totally agree with you. Where, how would someone like Joel Seaman, how would he, how, how could he be better? You know, the way that I, the biggest flaw that I see with him is the kind of the absolute statements. It's like, yeah. this is the way it is. Here's my proof. Um, and everyone else is wrong because this is the way it is. It's, we, for the most part, it's a, a lot of this is empirical. So in order to, I mean, speak with nuance, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you're a leader or if you're a coach and you can say, you know, I've struggled with this. And so here's something that I do that helps a, a certain sphere of athletes or I've struggled with it myself. So here's what I do to, to help that. That's a nuanced approach that has zero, you know, science-based evidence-based factuality to it. It's just pure. But that is evidence-based. Right. Well, okay. So, yeah. but even the value is in the nuance. The value is in yes. that gray area. But someone like Joel Seedman, it's like, it's always this uh, offensive that he's on that is yeah. defense-based. It's like, it's always like, you know, all of his Instagram posts are like three pages long based off of, you know, he's writing this defense paper up. And yeah. it's weird, like what, why not just do something and, and be, you know, I, it's, it's just hard for me to kind of, to, to understand. I mean, you, there's ways around doing what he's doing. Max, did you want to say something? I was gonna say, here's, a, here's a question, really. I think a lot of people that are, are looking for, the people that are probably going get, to get pulled into things, right? Um, and anyone that's actually worked with like, you know, people of high level sports, NFL, these things, like these people are not necessarily aware of training stuff. They don't, they don't sit there and, and think about it or obsess over it or read into it. They're, you know, they're football players. They're, they're there to play football or whatever. So their, their understanding of what goes on the gym is limited and, and really rightfully so they don't need to have any kind of specialized knowledge there. They, they have the money and the means they should be able to hire the professionals. One thing that's interesting to me is that a lot of people that don't have any idea what is so bad about this, for those people, can you give your best estimation? You're, you're kind of, you know, let's, let's cover the basic points here. Like what is so bad about a guy like Joel, you know, doing this, doing what he's doing, and how does it negatively impact the entirety of the community? Yeah, how does it play out? Yeah, so I think that the real negative is that the confusion it causes people. And I think a lot of people, 
And I see this more so in nutrition, but there's plenty of it in, in, in lifting as well. Um, is that people get paralysis by analysis and they don't want to, they feel like there's such a high barrier to entry because there's so much discourse over what the best way to do things is yep. that mm -hmm. they, a lot of people, it keeps them from even starting or even going after stuff, you know, and I have people all the time, especially in nutrition, they say, I'm just so confused. You know, I just feel like anything I start, is going to be wrong. And, you know, Zach, you brought up an interesting point. Um, I think one of the things that humbled me so much is that, and, and kept me from being like, this is the way to do things, is any of us who have coached who are worth a shit know that you can't do something one way because you've seen every different yeah. way work. <laughs> yes. You've seen every different way work. And you've seen where you've done something and you go, I, I know that there's no study that backs this up, but holy shit, it worked for this person. Now, I, that, now the problem with that is, I actually, I'll, I'll give you a great example of being evidence-based. So somebody the other day was like, you claim to be evidence-based, but I saw cupping marks on your back in one of the Instagram videos. How can you say you're evidence-based when you get something like cupping, which doesn't have really any research to support it? And I said, here's why. Because if you ask me about cupping, I'll just tell you that I just like it. I'm <laughs> yeah, not going to make- right. I'm Here's your gonna, evidence. <laughs> I'm not going to make any claims about it, and I'm not going to say that you should do it, right? But what happens- we have, what happens is somebody like, let's say Joel actually believes the stuff he's saying, right? So we'll, because that is a possibility. Maybe it worked sure. for him better, right? So maybe he did stop getting pain when he stopped squatting to full range of motion. Even though the literature doesn't support that, you become, we become so cognitively dissonant over things that have worked for us that we try right. to force those beliefs on other people because it helps feel us feel empowered. This is actually more of a psychological problem of course. Than, it, than it is kind of an X's and O's problem, right? It's the same reason that people can be shown. Uh, I remember there was a study they did a while back where they took people on like who were Republican or Democrat and they showed them either different information that would either support or refute their stances on different topics. And what they found was that either one was equally as powerful at reinforcing whatever bias they had. Yeah. Right. So, right. so I think the, one of the reason, one of the ways I got around this was going through the process of having a good advisor during my PhD, because I would have so many ideas of something that would work that would just get fucking crushed. Or <laughs> it, it, I would think that this was going to be the end all be all. And then it didn't work, you know, like, I'd have this biochemical pathway that I'd say, well, if we do this and then we do that, we'll get this. And he'll be like, and he would say, okay, we'll go try it. And then we wouldn't get anything. And so I think one of the things that made me realize is that, you know, it's, it's easy to have these ideas, but science, you know, you're never going to get a study that's going to tell you how to do something or even how to coach really. All they're going to right. do is give you concepts. In fact, science is going to tell us what not to do a lot more than what it's going to tell us to do, right? There are some scientific principles that we get from research that we generally can apply, right? So we know probably that volume and volume load are important concepts to apply to athletes. Progressive overload is something else we have to apply if we want to continue adaptation. But how that gets implemented in terms of a coaching form, that is an art form. Right. That right, is not, right. you know. It's empirical. I, I mean, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So science is a big blunt instrument, but coaching is an art form. But when you're somebody like Joel and you stick, you stay in your cognitive dissonance of, okay, well, this worked for me. And then you take it and you've got NFL players who, let's be real, are the best athletes on the face of the planet, the most genetically gifted <laughs> freaks. I tell all my friends who are powerlifters, I'm like, guys, please don't get your britches too big because yeah. – if there was a $10 million prize in powerlifting, none of us would be in the top 20. Yeah, because that's, you would yeah. get all the freaks from yeah, the NFL yeah. would come in. Yep. And you would, I mean, maybe guys like Ray Williams are an exception and that sort of thing. But I promise you, if we had $10, $20 million prizes in powerlifting, you would have over 21,000 pound squatters in a year. I yeah. promise you, you would. Yeah. Right? So For those sure. athletes are so genetically not just genetically gifted, but work extremely hard and are probably very injury resistant as well, which is one of the reasons they've gotten to be in the NFL because NFL football, just at, even yeah. college football and high school football, just weed out the genetically inferior just because your body can't handle it. Yep. Yeah. So what you end up with is people who can train really fucking hard, recover really well and are genetically gifted. And so what you get is people who are freaks. And so it's hard to say, well, look, I, did this with this guy and he got stronger okay well you didn't have a control group you don't know that that's, yeah yeah, that yeah right the best yeah. thing you could have done it's the same thing when people ask me like i had um really bad back injuries i had a bulging disc and a herniated disc and i i i did some uh rehabilitation therapy i worked with Stu mcgill i worked on i did the you know the big three as part of my rehab that sort of thing people will ask me they'll be like i have back pain should i do that would, would, would that work for you and i said i always say well it worked but I also don't have a control group. So maybe if I did nothing, the same thing would have happened. I right. don't know. Right? right now. So I'm not going to give you advice on your back pain. Cause guess what? I'm not a back pain specialist. I know shocking idea, you know, right. but it's interesting that, but that's the, the arc of the fitness industry. If I was a typical Fitspo, I would have said, Hey, I healed my back and you can too for right. my $29.99 ebook. Right, right, right. right. But I'm not going to do that because that's not appropriate. It's interesting you pointed out because there really is like, that will never happen. There'll never be the, the control groups for the Joels of the world where, where we can say, I mean, the people that know it are, are obviously going to know, hey, you know, whatever, like, you know, you do a, whatever insane exercise you're doing. It does not, you know, that does not equal success in the NFL. Um, no. The fact that the guy is already in the NFL is probably a bigger indicator as to anything that it, that happens <laughs> while you're working with him. But it's interesting right. because it's difficult. Your job to is correct. to not yeah. fuck him up. Exactly. Your job is right? to not fuck him up. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because, like, people can't grasp that, that these are not connected. I mean, and there's already, like, in weightlifting, it's super common for people to make all sorts of, like, really – logical connections that seem smart like oh if i if i make my deadlift go up 50 pounds my snatch is going to go up 50 pounds or that that seems that seems logical right it seems like yeah okay if you're stronger Maybe. then the number goes up but but you know to the layperson yeah okay but when you have been in the sport you know that's just not the case it's not going to happen um and it's funny because you you have these guys that can kind of play off the fact that people just are unaware of of this they're, they're unaware of like the underlying kind of factors that go on and so it's like you, know, you walk around and it's easy to say hey look this worked for this guy this worked for that guy i mean we know it's true with all the detox teas and everything else yeah. out there that people are going to buy it and you know so 
it's it's important that we have Elaine Norton to yep. go around and call <laughs> people out. I feel I feel very much so that it's a Thank public you. service because if it's not said, if no one goes about and actually, you know, quote unquote regulates some of the industry, it will never change. And it will it will just be this snake oil salesman stuff that goes on for decades and decades, right? Um, and you know, it's it's good. It's a service. You're doing so, a public service. I, I want to I want I want to talk more about that cognitive dissonance. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of like I feel like on Netflix right now there's just a ton of documentary. <laughs> you know what I mean? That just point yeah. out this cognitive dissonance, and it's not just you know Tiger King or whatever, but there's a lot of like corruption based documentaries right now. Uh, there was one on I think this woman's name was Elizabeth Holmes, and she was a CEO. Do you guys know about this one? Was that I haven't watched it. She had this company called Theranos. Theranos was a huge deal. Oh, out here. no, no. I, I, I did see that. I did see yeah. part of that. Yeah, that was wild. And there yeah. was this guy on there. He was awesome. Uh, I think he was, his like, position was like an ethics economist or something like that. And the way that he spoke was very eloquent. And he breaks down cognitive dissonance on that, those big scales that allow for bureaucracies to just take over the world, right? Yeah. Um, and his thing was he, they did a study where they had someone roll it. They would roll a die for someone. And before the dice was rolled, you would have to pick either the top or the bottom number, but it had to happen before the right dice was rolled. Whatever number you pick, whether it was the top or the bottom was the dollar amount that you would get 20 times in a row. And what happened was, and, and so people would eventually end up lying about which number they picked, right? If you saw a one on the top, you'd be like, well, I picked a, a, a I picked the bottom before you rolled it, right? Even though you probably picked the top. So people were lying uh, and they happened to make a lot of money over those 20 rolls. Then the next time they hooked them up to a lie detector and they said, they said, the money that you get will go directly to charity. And so they rolled again uh, 20 times and the people had a lot of success and the lie detector didn't fucking move. It stayed exactly where it was, even though they were lying. It's a, it's a guarantee that they were lying, which number they picked on, which was on the top of the bottom. But because they felt that what they were doing was so correct, it, it was so beneficial to society that they mm, actually believed that they were not lying. They're, they tricked their physiology into believing what they were saying, right? And I think, Lane, when you talked about, I think that Joel actually, he, he may or may not believe, that's the cognitive dissonance that's just so entrenching it's like what we love to watch almost you know what i mean like does he actually believe that he is what he's doing is correct it or is this a lie you know what what's the answer to that we do it's it's i I find it to be incredibly interesting most people um they develop an idea or a belief system and then they try to find evidence to support that which is actually the exact opposite of (laughs) <laughs> uh, the scientific method. And I'll give you a short story as to, I'm very grateful that I had such a good advisor because even scientists can, can I've met so many cognitive dissonant scientists less often than the average public, but still enough to be concerning. Um, I did one of my first experiments. We were measuring the anabolic response of a meal in terms of the duration uh, in response to a meal. And my hypothesis was that however long uh, the, plat- the blood levels of leucine stayed elevated uh, would be how long we'd see muscle protein synthesis be elevated because 
it was well established that leucine was what triggered muscle protein synthesis. And I, it just seemed logical to me. And that was not what the data showed when I got the data back. <laughs> it was like, okay, protein synthesis was back down to baseline by three hours, but leucine was like still maxed out at three hours. So it didn't make sense in my head. And I'm like, no, this can't be right. So I kept rerunning it and rerunning it and rerunning it and rerunning it, hoping that I had just done the analysis wrong. And I hadn't. <laughs> so finally, Lehman uh, brought me into his office and he was like, where do we stand on this duration study? Because, you know, you've been working on it for a while. And I said, yeah, it's almost done. I just got to run the data again. And he's like, didn't you say you're running the data again like a few weeks ago? And I said, yeah, I just, I think it's wrong. And then I explained <laughs> everything I was doing. And he said, it sounds like you are trying to torture the data to fit your hypothesis. And what you need to do is change your hypothesis to fit the data. And that, yeah, that was like right. a mind blowing right. moment for me. And it's interesting, um, you know, people, it's funny, people, uh, Max, you talked about how I'm doing a service. I actually don't like having to do this stuff. I actually hated it. I actually <laughs> hate it. Um, I wish I could just talk about the stuff I want to talk about, but I also feel right. like kind of the whole, I don't want to sound noble, but like the whole, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I kind of feel like right, allowing right. it is condoning it. Yep. Um, people will say, look at Lane. He's so arrogant. I'm like, you don't understand. It's actually the exact opposite of arrogance. I know how hard I studied, how much I studied, how much research, real research I actually did, and I know how little I know. So when I see somebody else who I know hasn't done nearly a tenth of what I've done, who's making these big sweeping claims, that's why I get angry and I go after him because I'm like, you're full of shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, it's one of those things, but you made a good point, Zach. That it's not, I used to have the belief that these people were just trying to scam people and they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they just care about money. I actually think that more often than not, people become so cognitively dissonant that they actually believe the stuff that they're saying, no matter how crazy it is. Yeah, like hook them up to a right. lie detector and they're, they're, nothing's yeah. changing, right? Absolutely. Like, physiologically, it's... It's not a lie, which is the most baffling thing to me. There was um, um, Alan Aragon. I don't know if you guys are familiar with yeah. him, but he had a debate with a guy named Gary Taubes, who's one of the big purveyors of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And Taubes had a research funding group called NUSI that he was the head of. And basically they were trying, in the Taubes' own words during the debate, he said, we are funding studies that will prove our hypothesis. And I was in the room and I actually, I think I like, audibly like said something <laughs> probably i shouldn't have but because i'm like that is that's not how science works yeah, you science. don't set out to prove your hypothesis you go here's our hypothesis now let's see if it holds up and alan asked him he said what if your studies disprove your hypothesis will you change your opinion and taub said no Okay. So then, there's no so, <laughs> and I actually, I actually threw my hands up in the air and said, then why the hell are we having this debate? Yeah, let's go. Out? Yeah, we're so, out. Yeah. Let's go get lunch. So, it's just, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, right. There's, there's nothing going to change, right? But if you, like, you know, if you show me enough evidence, I'll change my mind. Now, it's not going to be like if it's, you know, if we take something like, let's say somebody comes out and says, I have, they've proven that muscle damage is more important than volume load for progression, which as of now, 
the evidence seems to point the other way, that, that muscle damage is not a prerequisite for growth and that sort of thing. Um, I might believe it if you show me enough data, but it's going to have to be a lot of data because there's quite a bit of data to suggest the opposite, right? right? right. So science, I think people don't understand. It's kind of like um, the government. People complain that the government is slow and clunky and all that kind of stuff, but it's that way by design because you don't want somebody who can just get into government and then just say, well, we're just kicking all this shit out. And we're going to rewrite the whole right, thing, right? right? Yeah. Science is the same way. You want it to be gradual. You don't want the scientific community's consensus to change really quickly because if you change based on the conclusion of every study, I mean, we'd be like ping pong balls flopping back and forth, right? So that's why it's important to be slow. And I think some of these practitioners, they use that to kind of create dissent and confusion. And the way it's usually framed is kind of the, the game changers sort of thing where they go, you know, if two studies disagree, they go, well, the question is who is funding that study? You know, and they make it like this big nefarious right, right. sort of thing. And I always tell people like having been in it and had studies funded by industry, I'm not going to say that it, that nefarious things never happen. Cause I'm sure they do. Yeah. But if your only criticism of a study is funding, it says more about your bias than the researchers. Yeah. You can't right? be a tinfoil hattery, tinfoil hat wearing. No. Yeah, know, right. Conspiracy theorists. So uh, somebody's got to fund it. Somebody's yeah. got to fund it. Yeah. If we could, let's shift focus here to to nutrition because Lane, that is your specialty. I mean, that if, if we're going to have someone with your base of knowledge, uh, you know, I'd be remiss to not talk about nutrition. Um, and we're going to, I would like to talk about it in a way that would relate to weightlifters or, you know, Olympic style weightlifting and potential weight class uh, oriented. My answer to any question you have is keto. I was just going to ask. <laughs> I was just going to ask yeah. that. <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on keto and why is it so, the best? Clearly we know keto is the best for weightlifting. Now can you explain yeah. why? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I would, I just want to know like what, what are some sort of meat and potatoes things that if you're, let's say you've been weightlifting for quite a while and you want to start focusing on maybe some composition uh, yeah. and it could be powerlifting. It could be strength oriented, but let's try to stay away from general fitness and, and maybe yeah. bodybuilding and focus more on kind of the strength athlete and, and the more advanced one. What are some meat and potato things that, that yeah. you would have to say? You know, it, it's kind of one of the principles that I really liked um, that it, again, there's no evidence base for this, but um, Dave Tate said it a long time ago and I've actually found myself agreeing with it more and more over the years, which is, you know, one of the biggest things I get is kind of one of the biggest decisions I think a lifter is going to make is what weight class they're going to compete in. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you, I have argued for lifters to go up a lot more than I've argued for them to go down many <laughs> right. times. Max, yes. Um, yeah. Max, Max so, on that as well. I, I believe I agree with that too. Yeah. So I like what Dave said. Dave said, basically gain weight until you stop getting stronger and then cut down to the next weight class, yeah. you know? And again, that's not going to be the case for everybody, but generally I have found that to be a relatively good rule of thumb, right? Now, obviously there are some caveats. You don't want to make, you know, uh, like for example, US, uh, USA weightlifting restructures the weight classes every few years and that can make it difficult for people. Um, and also, you know, you may, it can go both ways. I mean, you may be somebody who 
you look at a weight class a little bit lower than you and you know that it's going to take some strength out of you to get down there, but you also know that you have a more competitive total even with that strength loss. So that is, it's, it's not always about getting the biggest total. It's about getting the biggest total in your particular weight class. But I think one of the things that I, I really encourage people to do is if you are not a world level competitor and you're not looking to set national records or even state records, don't cut for meats until you're good enough to really make a difference in some of that stuff. Like just get the experience. Like I cannot tell you, and I'm sure Max, you guys have the same experience. You get somebody who's been powerlifting or weightlifting for six months. They're going to do their first local meet <laughs> and they want to, they want to cut like eight kilos for it. And, and it's just like, no, because, because your only reference is to how well you've done in the gym. And when you have a shitty meet because you've had to cut so much weight, it's going to be a bad experience. Like just go in and lift the weights, get the experience of competing. That's yeah. one of my big principles I use with people. Yeah. Um, if I do have people that I have like higher in higher level people who, you know, and again, it's all caveats, right? Like if you're a half kilo above a weight limit and you've got, you know, 12 weeks to get there and you're new, fine. I'm not going to argue with you about a half kilo. That's sure. Go for it. Right. The, but you just got to be reasonable about it. Um, one of the big benefits I felt like I had, you know, back in the, the years when I won nationals was my nutrition background. Um, I felt like kind of evidence-based weight cutting hadn't really made its way into powerlifting that much yet. And especially, I think a lot of people, you know, IPF, USAPL are two-hour weigh-ins. I, I believe USA weightlifting is yes, the same. Yep, yes, yes. Yeah. So that is a whole different ball game than 24-hour weigh-ins. That yeah, is, you, it's not, you even, better be, not even the same world. Yeah. yeah. You better be basically walking in at what you lift at in the gym relatively close. Um, yeah. You know, obviously you can cut a, you know, a kilo or two and whatnot. But I can tell you the years I won nationals, I was not the strongest person on that platform. I wasn't. Right. I saw the right. lifts my competition were putting up in the gym. And I remember people would send them to me and I'd always say, okay, but well, let's see it on the platform, you know, because. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, that's always, yeah. I mean, that's same old song and dance, man. Yeah. 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 The, and it's not, well, in, in part of it's the weight cutting part of it's also some people are better, just better on meat day. I'm a, I'm the kind of person I get a lot out of the atmosphere and you know, my recovery and whatnot. Um, I think the only other person I'd heard who'd had kind of like my, uh, is like Chad, Chad Smith. He talked about how he'd get a lot out of peaking. Oh, I yeah, get peaking, a lot yeah. out of it too. Um, so yeah, I basically tell people, I'm like, uh, I don't worry about the weights I'm hitting in training until right. I get pretty close to the meat. Cause I just know they're going to be crap until it gets to the meat. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I had a plan going in, you know, I, I was, my plan when, when the USAPL restructured the weight classes from the 100 kilo class to 93 and 105, I had to make a decision because I was literally right smack dab in between. Right. I made the decision to go down, and, but I did that over a year. So that was not something where it was like, and I, I knew plenty of guys who stayed right around 100 kilos and then said, okay, it's uh, – 10 weeks to the meet, 12 weeks to the meet. Now it's time to start cutting weight. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I don't think that's a good idea in bodybuilding, but at least in bodybuilding, yeah. if your performance in the gym goes to shit, you can be fine. If you're in powerlifting or weightlifting, you yeah. can't afford that. No. And what I see, and I see this in MMA too, and I actually uh, talked to a few, I'm, 
I've been trying to get some fighters to listen to me because some of the weight cutting protocols I see them do oh, is man. also a bunch of. Oh God. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm explaining this to them and other palaces. I'm saying your last eight weeks before a meet is going to be the hardest training you're going to do. And your recovery is going to be the most important. You need to be damn near where you're going to start your final, you know, water cut. But before that starts, you don't want to be trying to drop weight during the final eight weeks. So when I dropped down to that, I, what I did was I dieted for four weeks and then went to maintenance mode for four weeks or even like reverse dieting like I talk about. And I would do that. I spent, so of that entire year dropping down, I actually spent less time dieting than I did in maintenance and reversing because I wanted to make sure when I got there, I was really comfortable. Yeah. Right. So, you so would, my, you're saying you would bring it down and up and down and up instead of just steady down? Correct. So like, for example, like I started hundred kilos, I, I went down to 98 and then I just chilled out there for like a couple months. And then from 98, I would go down to like 95 and a half, I think it was. And then I just chilled out there for a few months and I would actually kind of slowly walk my calories back up just to see how high I could kind of get them without putting on any weight. And so I did that several cycles of that. So by the time, by the time it came for my kind of peaking phase before nationals in 2014, I was already, I was weighing 93 and a half kilos. Like I was there. Right, you know? right. I, all I had to do was worry about cutting a little bit of water weight the week of the meet. Whereas, you know, I, some of my competitions, some of the main guys I were competing against, I found out they were cutting like 10 pounds the week of the meet, you yeah. know? And right. whereas, so, and so I saw this because I started seeing people miss second attempts and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, how do you miss a second attempt? Like if you miss it on a technicality, I get it. But if you sure. miss it based on you just weren't strong enough, I'm like, when I see that, I'm like, but come to find out, they had cut a bunch of weight, right? So that's one of the things I tell people. If you're going to make a weight cut and you're going to make a move, it's not just a one-time thing. You're actually moving to a different weight class. Again, if it's 24-hour weigh-in, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. You, right. you can cut you know, up to you know, 10 kilos and probably get it back and be okay. Yeah. But if you're doing a two-hour weight cut, you got to have your stuff nailed down. And the other thing I really emphasize to my athletes, especially the high level competitors is control everything you can control. Even like little stuff. It may sound stupid and I'll give you guys an example. It may sound stupid, but it might not be. So when I went to IPF worlds in 2015, which was in Finland, I got there a week in advance, right? Yeah. I had a rental car because even though it cost me more money, I was like, I don't want to deal with having to get on a bus on the day of the meet and like worry about if I'd miss it or yeah, yeah. if it was going to come on time or anything like that. I, um, three days before the meet, I went to the meet. It was the only time I went there. I watched all day, you know, cause I didn't want, I don't go to, like, if I'm in a big meet, I don't go the day before. Like I don't go watch. I don't want any nerves or anything like that. I'll be totally relaxed. But three days before I went, I watched, I found where the weight scale was. I found where the bathrooms yeah. were. I found where the warm-up room was. I yeah. thought about where am I going to set my stuff up? Um, where uh, is the bathroom close? Where's the weigh-in room? Um, where are the water fountains? Where, you know, is there enough space for me to get my suitcase in here so I can set up? Um, and then when in between flights, I went down to the platform, stood on the platform and said, okay, when I squat on Saturday, I'm going to look here. Like I put that visualization in my mind and then, um, I went to, um, I went to the, 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 you have to get everybody who's coming to watch you credentialed. 
Well, it turns out some of the credentials had got kind of screwed up um, and they didn't have some information. Well, no big deal. I fixed it. We had plenty of time. But if I'm trying to deal with that on the day of the meet because I wanted to save some money on hotels and stuff and I got there a little bit later than usual, like it could have really thrown me, right? And um, the other thing I did was, and I told people this, I'm like, how, and I, I saw this, people missed weight at Worlds. I'm like, how can yeah. you spend all that money, all that time, all that work, and then miss weight? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I took my, the first thing I did when I got to Finland, I took my home scale with me. When I got to the hotel, legit, this is the first thing I did. Got on my scale with the clothes I was going to be able to keep on. Didn't pee, didn't poop, didn't eat anything. Went straight to the meat, got on the meat scale, and saw what the difference was. It was like, okay, now I know what the difference is, and now I know how I can make weight. Yep. Right? Because I knew what I had to weigh on my scale to get to the meat scale and not have surprises. And one more story about that. So um, I was underweight. The, the, I actually like to be slightly underweight the day before the meet so I can eat up into the meat and feel good. Um, so the day of the meet, I got the, uh, the, the last lot number. So I was the very right. last person that was going to get weighed. And they were going fast too. So I knew I was going to have much time to warm up. So I didn't want to be trying to cram food while I'm warming right, up. Right, right. So while, while everybody else is weighing in, I'm drinking water, eating uh, food, and Susie Gary looks at me and she's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and I'm like, I know what it looks like, but I got this. And I ended up weighing in, you know, a pound under anyway. So right, right. it just goes to show like when you're prepared yeah. and you take it to that level, like you don't have to worry about all this extra stuff. And then when it comes to weight cutting, I think that some of those small details really get lost on people. Absolutely. We, it's funny because every, everything you said we do every, every meet. We always have our scale. We always bring the scale, you know, and, and so it's funny because we'll pack every single time I'll have like the TSA pre-check and my wife will always pack the scale in my bag. So every time I go through pre-check, it doesn't matter because they unpack my bag and have to weigh the scale and look at it and like a whole yeah. medical scale. Like we always do it, but it's funny because you make that <laughs> comment about like, yeah, I mean like all that stuff seems like common sense to us because it's like every time you show up to a meet, you want to, you know, be early, be aware of everything that's going to go on. You know, like you said, like walking around the venue to find out, like, is there like a 300 yard hallway to get to the bathroom? Like, yeah. what is the situation with everything? But it's, it's interesting because that's a lot of detail to the event that I think people maybe overlook, but it's funny that I think in weightlifting, I don't know what Zach's opinion is, but there seems to be a lot less of this really strict adherence to diet and, and control of body weight outside of competition. I think part of it's probably because there's a younger crowd in, in weightlifting more often, like, and they just aren't going to be as disciplined, but it's funny. You'll see people that will be like, you know, not, not to be like derogatory or anything, but like kind of like soft, you know, yeah. a lot of people that are, that are at top levels that are softer than you'd think they would be. And, and then cutting at the, at the last bit, you know, and it's almost like kind of odd that that discipline hasn't really bled into weightlifting as much, whereas powerlifting for sure, the top guys, top people, there's much more discipline. Obviously bodybuilding is, is insane, but yeah. it's funny that that hasn't trickled into it. And so I, I almost wonder like what yeah. your thought is on like body fat percentage, that kind of stuff in, in weightlifting and, and you know, obviously 
going to be the same as most things, but maybe you can talk about it a little bit. Well, I want to, I just want to, oh. I, I agree, Max, but I think that if you watch, you know, you've gone to worlds, you've brought yeah. competitors to worlds, you see those athletes, they're ripped. Yeah. Right. yeah they, everyone they, at worlds is, is shredded. Right. They're walking around usually like shredded freak of nature athletes because that's what they are. I think there's a lot of weightlifters in America that can get to higher level meets um, yeah. just by training hard, just sure. working yeah. really, really hard. Um, and, and maybe their athleticism isn't what carries them there, but I agree. There's a lot of, you know, that soft softness, you know, to, to a lot of these guys. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to hear, uh, Lane, your thoughts on, on composition, right? That's where you wanted to kind of go. Yeah. Yeah. Next. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it really depends. Obviously when you start getting like the super heavyweight classes, like sure. shredded is not as important. Um, and even some of the heavier classes, like you, you'll see guys, you know, it, it just, it's, it's interesting. And I don't really have a scientific uh, validation for it, but you can be shredded at the lighter weight classes and it seems to help you. And even the middling yeah. weight class. I mean, you look at, I, I can't, I'm not as familiar with USA weightlifting, but I mean, if you look at the top guys in USAPL right now, Russ Orhe, yeah. um, you know, shredded. Taylor Atwood, these are yep. not guys who like, you know, 10 years ago, if they showed up to a powerlifting meet, they'd be like, what are you here for? The bodybuilding meets the bodybuilding show is not here. <laughs> right, you know? right. Like, um, yeah, they're, they're in really great shape. So I think especially in those middling and lower weight classes, if you are not going to try to eat every little bit out of your composition that you can, you're really cutting yourself short. Okay. You just, you know, when it comes yeah. to those, I would say, you know, up to around a hundred kilos, if you're not getting close to 10% or sub, you're probably you're probably leaving some uh, some placings out there. What you about for I mean? women? What would you say for women then? Uh, 15, so 16, 17, 18? I don't somewhere, I don't know. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere around there. Okay. And, you know, um, and but every, you know, obviously everybody's different. There there right, are yeah. some people who, you know, like you take a guy in the eighty threes uh, with powerlifting like Brett Gibbs. I mean, he's not fat, but he's not really ripped either. You know what right. I mean? Right. But he's very, he's very kind of freaky, strong. Type yeah, he's of very, guy. very competitive. So, yeah. you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, he needs to go down to 74 because, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's had that conversation with his coaches and I'm sure he's probably maybe right. tried to start losing some weight and saw that it didn't go well for him. I, I, I don't know. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it has to be done on a case by case basis. But in general, when you look at the trends, um, super, you know, heavies and super heavies, you don't need to be ripped. You know, you, yeah. you and, and I think part of that is just your leverages change, especially into the into the squat and bench press. But right. if you look at the big, once you get above 100 kilos, you really don't see guys start pulling more weight, like in deadlift. You don't really yeah, get yeah. a boost out of deadlift from from going heavier. From heavy, okay. um, it's almost exclusively squat and bench press. Yeah. Now, right. I don't know in terms of weightlifting if you guys see like maybe somebody can sit better into a clean and jerk, and that's the kind of thing when they get a little bit heavier. Again, it has to be a case-by-case -case basis. But no, I would say that um, it, there is definitely a point of diminishing returns with, with body weight. Um, right. and I'm, I'm probably a pretty good case study in that. I got up to 116 kilos body weight, and I totaled the same that I did when I was 100, almost 107 kilos body weight. So um, yeah. I was squatting a lot more, and I, was, I felt really good in the clean and jerk. But I think – speed, uh, fitness, a lot of carrying a lot of water can affect that. So 
Yeah. I am, um, you know, I kind of had a little similar experience. I went up to the 105 kilo class last year to compete in powerlifting and I felt, um, I think I was a little bit more durable in training. I did, I could kind of power through a lot more stuff. Um, but I didn't get that much stronger than right. I was at 93. And, um, you know, the other thing I have to think about too is, okay, I'm a nutrition guy. I'm trying to sell nutrition stuff. Sad as it sounds, it's yeah, better yeah. for business. Right. It's better for business when I'm ripped, plus the wife likes it better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, so I yeah. Do notice, I do notice when I get down to this body weight, I do have to be a little bit more cautious about my recovery. I've got to be smarter about, like, when I push myself. Um, you know, like, I, I can't just, um, you know, like the other day I was, I was in the gym and I was supposed to hit a, a squat single and then sets of four afterwards. And I got through my second set of four and was like, man, my back just feels gross right now. I'm going to head over to belt squats and then I'm just going to do some box deadlifts. Cause I just felt like, all right, I can't win the meet now. You know, I, right. I need to just do what's best for long term. Now maybe nothing would have happened if I gone all the way through with it. But one of the things I've learned being 38 years old, uh, discretion is the better part of valor in some cases. Yeah. But when it comes to weight cutting, I really think that, the biggest thing I would emphasize on people is don't try to do it at the last minute, especially if you're going for two hour weigh-ins, right? Don't try to do it at the last minute. I gave a talk to, I think in two, I want to say in 2018 to USA weightlifting and uh, they had their, I think they had a conference in Chicago and I gave a yeah, talk the sim- on symposium. Cutting. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave a talk on weight cutting, which was really well received. A lot of coaches um, asked, you know, really kind of interacted with me about it. And um, I think one of the things is, because a lot of weightlifters, you know, a lot of other Olympic athletes and other Olympic sports like wrestling. Wrestling is where most weight cutting methods came from in the, in the original. And what do wrestlers do? They wait till the last minute. And they yeah, last the minute. Weight, yeah. Right? So, you know, but even that, you know, I would argue is not the best way to do things. Um, right. I think that people, people, I mean, we're seeing this now. With, with what's going on in society. People would rather suffer later than maybe suffer a little bit less on the front end. They'd rather deal with a lot of suffering later, right? So it, it's kind of like, well, I know I could cut more weight now, but pizza's awesome, you know? Like, so <laughs> it's, and what I'll tell people is I'm like, listen, if you, the more work you do on the front end, the less work you're gonna have to do on the back end. And I would rather be personally I would rather be doing the work on the front end in deep into my off season training where I'm like an accumulation phase or just kind of maintenance phase, just, you know, basic strength building where I'm not having to, cause I don't want to be on a 500 calorie, 600, 700 calorie deficit while I'm trying to squat three days a week. And That's just the feeling like, right, yeah, right. Exactly. Feeling like absolute garbage. Cause it's just not going to go well. Right. And then the week of the meet, I don't want to be going, I don't, it's so funny. I had a friend who used to fight in MMA. I'll give this example. He would celebrate when he made weight like he'd already won the fight. Like, <laughs> he would be so happy he made weight. And I'm like, dude, what the – like, you still got to go get punched in the face tomorrow. Are you crazy? Yeah. You know, like, you should – like, the weight thing, that should just be a foregone conclusion. You should have your shit nailed down so much to where it's not even a – like, that's not even a – like, when I go to a yeah. meet, I'm not even – like, I have zero – concern over whether I'm going to make weight. I know I'm going to make weight. My concern is over already visualizing what I'm going to do on the platform. Right. You know, but I think a lot of people, 
they put themselves in a tough position and then they and then again definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over expecting right. a different result as soon as the meet's over they go oh thank god that's over now i can just you know stuff my face and and, and not worry anymore and i tell people like hey listen after a meet i go out i have a nice dinner whatever and the next day i'm back at it because i'm already preparing for the next yeah. meet and sure yeah. i can i can say fuck it and do whatever i want but it's just going to make it that much harder six months from now yeah, it's the drastic switch in lifestyle that people think will alleviate their problems, you know, focusing on, on, on that massive switch to being super healthy. It's like, well, if you were just, you know, relatively healthy throughout and, and you built that sort of a lifestyle, that little, you would just have to turn the dial down a little bit. Oh, that's a great point, Zach. I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, what do you think is more important? Being 90%, 100% of the time? Or being 100%, 50% of the time, the other 50%, you're off the fucking rails. Right, you know? right, right. And that's how most people do it. And it's so funny because even in nutrition, a lot of people, you know, I, I kind of, now I do it just to trigger people. But, you know, I'll show myself eating like, a, you know, something like a sweet, like ice cream or something like that. And talk about how I still lose weight eating that sort of stuff. And I still maintain a lean physique eating that sort of stuff. People are like, well, that's not healthy. And I'll be like, Okay, well, tell me how it's not healthy. All my blood markers are healthy. I feel good. Um, I feel actually after I have ice cream, I feel amazing. <laughs> um, you know, but it's like, do you really think that this small little bowl of ice cream once a day is that bad for me when I'm maintaining my weight and all my other stuff is nailed down? But your idea of dieting where you're completely on during the week and then you binge eat on the weekend, somehow that's better, you know, yeah. like. It's just funny how people's brains are wired. All right, Lane, uh, we're going to end it there. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on, man. Um, this was an awesome show. I, I can't wait to get it sent out to people. Uh, before we go, can you just give us a rundown on where people can find your info, um, if they want nutritional advice, if they want your services, where they can go? Sure, I appreciate it. And thank you guys for having me on. Uh, I've, you know, I've seen you guys' stuff, and you guys are doing great shit, so I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so if you want more information on what we do, uh, my website is biolane.com and we offer coaching through there. Uh, we also have a series of books and eBooks. So we have uh, fat loss forever, which is kind of my, I guess, fat loss Bible, as well as the complete co contest prep guide, which is specifically for physique athletes looking to compete. And then we will have uh, our app coming out. And it will, you can go check it out at joincarbon.com. So it's going to be called Carbon Diet Coach. Cool. Um, and it will be available hopefully very soon in the iOS and Google Play Store. Um, we've submitted to Apple. We're just waiting. And I think they're just very slow because of the COVID-19 stuff. Yeah. Um, so that should be out very soon. Um, and then we, we have a... Um, on our website, biolane.com, we also have a, what we call our workout builder, which, so for people who can't afford custom coaching or one-on-one -on -one coaching, we have basically like templates that are available on our site for a subscription of $12.99 per month. And you can have access, like, it's not like you pay that and get one template, you get access to all of them. Um, and so that's kind of long and short what we do. If people are interested in the books, it's at biolanestore.com and uh, on social media, I'm biolane on all my channels. Uh, come, Holler at me, tell me I suck or tell me I'm awesome, whichever. Um, <laughs> send me questions. You know, I do my best to answer everything I can get to. Cool. All right. 
Thank you guys so much for listening awesome. and we will, uh, we'll see you on the next one.